For now, let's turn to Luke chapter 6. It's interesting, Joanne asked me this morning as I was leaving what I was preaching on, and I've sort of been working on three sermons at the same time, and I kind of blanked, and I was trying to like, which one is for today? And I couldn't remember. Um, But uh, I think we've got the right one. So Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And uh, as always, listen carefully, as this is God's word. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us once again to the Gospel of Luke to hear the story of Jesus. Help us to learn more about your Son and use this Gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us of who we once were, who we are now, and what you are calling us to be. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us come to know Christ more. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. And so we pray, speak through the words of this gospel today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. About 25 years ago, there was an amazing commercial on during the Super Bowl. It was set at some unknown time in the future, and it showed a man speaking to a large audience in a great auditorium, and he was talking about the world taking on and overcoming numerous severe diseases. And then he talked about overcoming spinal cord injuries. And out on the stage to a standing ovation walked Christopher Reeve. Many of you are familiar with the actor Christopher Reeve. He's known for his role as the famous superhero Superman. Christopher Reeve was no stranger to the world of the big screen and television. However, in May of 1995, Christopher Reeve's life changed dramatically 
while competing in a steeplechase event in Culpeper, Virginia, an event which he loved, a strange thing happened. While coming around the third of five jumps, Reeves' horse, apparently spooked, made a refusal where the horse suddenly stops and Reeves fell forward off the horse and got tangled in the reins. He landed headfirst on the far side of the fence, shattering two of his top vertebrae, leaving him totally paralyzed from the neck down. Once an actor of great renown, he was now a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair and needing a respirator to breathe. He became a leading advocate for spinal cord injury research. After a bad reaction to an antibiotic, he suffered heart failure, and he passed away in 2004. Today, there are an estimated 300,000 paralyzed individuals living in the United States. On average, 18,000 new spinal cord injuries are reported every year. There is a new spinal cord injury occurring every 31 minutes. These are serious injuries. Paraplegia is the loss of movement and sensation in the lower body. It affects 47% of the spinal cord injury population. 52% are affected by quadriplegia, which is loss of movement and sensation in both the arms and legs. The average age of the injury is 43. 79% are males, half are married, and most survive and live near normal lifespans. Anyway, there's this commercial. And you see Christopher Reeve, who at the time everyone knew as one of the foremost spokesmen in the world for the treatment of spinal cord injuries. And he walked out onto the stage. It was an amazing, stunning commercial. The phones at NBC and all of their affiliates lit up. Thousands and thousands of people called in wanting to know how he did it, what treatment was used, where could they go to get that same treatment for themselves or their loved ones with spinal cord injuries. And the people at the television stations had to respond by telling these people that it wasn't real. The commercial was set in the future. Christopher Reeve was still paralyzed. He only walked in the commercial through the magic of digital cinematography. And then over the next few days, there was this enormous firestorm of criticism. Tremendous controversy erupted over whether or not this commercial had brought unexpected false hope to thousands of suffering people and then snatched it away. Some said it was a mean-spirited trick. Some people were furious. It was an amazing, controversial commercial. It was designed to draw attention to this significant public health issue. It was designed to bring hope to paralyzed people. And yet some said it brought false hope. And it was clearly outside the bounds of acceptable advertising. It broke the rules of what you were allowed to do. And in Luke chapter 6, we find an amazing and controversial situation. An event designed to bring hope and healing to someone who need it. At the same time, 
it broke the rules of what you were allowed to do. Let's turn to our text today, Luke 6. And we start with declared mercy, verses 1 through 5. Declared mercy. A little background is in order here. Remember, Jesus' first words of his ministry were in Luke chapter 4, which Frank preached on a few weeks ago. And he quoted Isaiah 61, which was our responsive reading a few weeks ago. And there Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, the blind will see, the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now this declaration of mercy was immediately followed in the Gospel of Luke by acts of mercy. Jesus healed a demon-possessed man at Capernaum. That same night, he laid hands on each individual that came to him for healing. And after calling Peter, James, and John, he encountered a leper and then astonished a crowd of people by compassionately touching this man and healing him. And next, he healed a paralytic, mercifully forgiving his sins, even though he didn't ask for that. We looked at both of those events two weeks ago. Then last week, we saw when he encountered Levi and went to a banquet at Levi's home, there was a literal feast of mercy, since the Son of God sat down with sinners. And at that feast, challenged by the Pharisees, questioning his association with these sinners, Jesus reminded them in Matthew's account of what the prophet Hosea had said. Matthew 9, he said, Go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mercy is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Hosea 6.6, in his entirety, what Jesus was quoting, says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea's message to Israel is that sacrifices and burnt offerings in themselves held no weight with God. What pleased God is a heart devoted to him and a life characterized by mercy. Mercy is inseparable from faith. Religious observances that don't look out for the needs of others. In other words, religion without mercy is unacceptable. Now, the prophet Micah, who is a contemporary of Hosea, gave this truth its most famous expression in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, some translations say to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Biblically, mercy and kindness are sure signs of knowing God and living a life that pleases him. And that's not just Old Testament prophets. The Apostle John made this equally clear in 1 John 3. Uh, He said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So mercy is declared by Jesus to be one of God's priorities for his people. And it is precisely here we see the true colors of Jesus' critics. Jesus has just finished teaching that new wine needs new wineskins, the very end of Luke 5. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine 
must be put into fresh wineskins. And now we see immediately why the Pharisees' old wineskins don't work. Starting again, verse 1, chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them. You ever wonder if Jesus gets exasperated with some of these questions? You know, they, uh, He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So they've walked through a grain field, and then they picked and ate some grain. Now, there is nothing wrong with what they did. It is expressly allowed in Deuteronomy 23. The problem is they did it on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees said is a violation of the fourth commandment against working on the Sabbath. In fact, the religious leaders of that day had developed a series of 39 clarifications of what work was so you could know what you could and couldn't do. The Pharisees had also developed Sabbath regulations that related specifically to the issues raised in today's text. Three of those prohibitions were reaping, threshing, and winnowing. A Jew could not pick a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath because picking the grain was considered reaping. Rubbing it between your hands was considered threshing, and chewing it was considered winnowing. But, there's an exception, it's okay if he was starving, which, of course, is pretty difficult to prove. I mean, when was the last time your teen claimed he was starting, starving, having not eaten for at least 20 minutes? So the disciples here have broken all three rules against reaping, threshing, and winnowing. And so the Pharisees, they're outraged. They thought they caught Jesus and his followers dead to rights in this flagrant disregard for the law. Now, it's easy to look at this and say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. But when you're looking to get somebody doing something wrong, take what you can get. The critical issue is the religious leaders failed to distinguish what God said from what they said about what God said. Those two have come to be viewed as identical. Now, in Hebrew Bible, you have the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, commonly known as the law. But you also have the Mishnah, which is the writings of the rabbis about the law, and you have the Talmud, which is the authoritative interpretations of the law, kind of like a Bible commentary with legal authority. And one section of the Talmud has 24 chapters of Sabbath law interpretations. And it can be considered breaking the law if you violate the rules of the Bible, the Mishnah, or the Talmud. And since it's nearly impossible to know all the rules, it's nearly impossible to keep all the rules. And it hasn't changed. But instead of becoming defensive, Jesus goes on the offense. 
The confronted becomes the confronter. And one of the things we see in the Gospel of Luke is it's usually not wise to go one-on-one with Jesus. And so Jesus appeals to an incident in the life of Israel's greatest king, one of their greatest heroes, the founder of Jerusalem as the seat of government, the leader of what is considered the golden age of Israel. Jesus appeals to this Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 21, where David ate the consecrated bread in the tabernacle called the bread of the presence or the showbread. This bread is placed in God's presence to symbolize that God is the source of Israel's nourishment and strength and to remind Israel of their dependence on God for all things physical and spiritual. The bread is considered holy and can only be eaten by the priests. Yet David and his soldiers ate it. And in this story, David is a desperate, famished refugee fleeing from King Saul. And he and his men are starving, and they beg the priest, Ahimelech, for bread. And the only bread the priest had is the showbread. So he gave it to them, and they ate it. Now, according to Jesus, David's actions have direct application to this accusation of the Pharisees against the disciples. David violated a religious rule, even one found in the Bible, yet it was okay with God because it was an act of necessity. Certainly, if David could eat the showbread, then the son of David had the right to eat of his father's grain from the field. And if King David broke the law and wasn't condemned, surely Jesus could break the tradition and be held guiltless. The point is that God is far more concerned about our hearts than our outward demonstration of religious devotion. When it comes right down to it, a heart of mercy always trumps an animal sacrifice or perfect attendance or special music, no matter how beautiful, or even a great sermon. The Sabbath law was given to Israel as a mark of her relationship to God. And really, the Sabbath in itself is an act of mercy for both man and beast to give them needed rest each week. Any religious law that is contrary to mercy should be looked on with suspicion. God wants mercy, not sacrifice. He wants love, not legalism. The Pharisees who sacrificed to obey their Sabbath rules thought they were serving God. And when they accused Christ, they thought they were defending God, as if God needs defending And so Jesus lays out for us the divine principle that people shouldn't suffer under cold legalism. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you really understood the prophets, Hosea and Micah, that God desires merciful, compassionate action over rituals and rules, then you wouldn't have condemned my disciples for taking the grain. And a thousand years ago, Ahimelech, the priest, he understood mercy and he lived it out, not just with grain, but using consecrated bread to feed the hungry. Pharisees, you don't know the Bible as well as you think you do. You need to show mercy. I think it's interesting that Jesus appealed to prophet, Hosea and Micah, priest, Ahimelech, and king, David, covering all the Old Testament a point the Pharisees surely wouldn't have missed. And of course, we know now that he is the ultimate 
prophet, priest, and king. Those sorts of allusions in the Bible are not coincidental or accidental. Those are all done very deliberately to point us to Jesus. And then top it off, he says, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is part of the moral law, the Ten Commandments given by God himself, and Jesus is claiming to be Lord over the law. He's even saying that he's greater than the law. Therefore, not doing good on the Sabbath day or any other day is the same as doing harm. Furthermore, in declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is actually affirming equality with God, for God established the Sabbath, and that got their attention. And just so you don't misunderstand the declaration that he has made here, he backs it up with demonstrated mercy. So he's declared mercy, and now he demonstrates mercy, verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have actually a pretty ironic situation here. Religious leaders are watching Jesus every move to see if he will show mercy and heal this man so they can charge him with sin. It's the Sabbath, and if eating grain is against the rules, healing on the Sabbath is a big-time problem. And it seems that Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he has this man get up and stand where everybody can see him. And he confronts the Pharisees with this question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Again, to, do, to refuse to do good is to do evil. Your failure to do good is to do harm. The Pharisees are concerned with Jesus not keeping the law. And what Jesus is pointing out, in fact, is they're the ones who are failing to keep the law by not loving their neighbor and therefore not loving God. 1 John 4.20 says as much. There it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And certainly Jesus was talking to them in Matthew 5 when he said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is letting the Pharisees know that if they truly understood the Bible, if they truly understood the law, like the Old Testament prophets I quoted earlier, then the right thing to do, the good thing to do, is to heal this man. And once again, there is nothing in the Torah, in the Bible, which demands you refrain from healing on the Sabbath. Jesus' actions broke only their man-made additions to God's rule. He is defying their legalism. And there's good reason for that. First, legalism demands extra-biblical conformity. 
Legalism demands conformity to an extra-biblical standard. And that's usually because it turns a principle into a law. This is critical. Keeping the law is not automatically legalism. Sometimes it's just obedience. When God says, thou shalt not murder, we don't call those people who take that commandment seriously legalists. When God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, we don't dismiss faithful spouses as legalists. A legalist is one who takes a man-made rule and elevates it to the level of divine commandment. It may take a good biblical practice, a good biblical habit, a spiritual discipline, fasting, and make it a hard and fast rule, and in that process, distorting what the Bible actually says. Second, legalism fails to read the Bible carefully. Jesus says this often. He says in verse 3, have you not read? That's a critical question. Have you not read, you keeper of the rules? Have you not read what God has already revealed to you? These leaders, Pharisees, scribes, these are the leaders of the people of the book. And Jesus is saying, have you not read the book? Friends, let me stop and ask right here. How many times would Jesus have to say that to us when we're arguing our viewpoints and excusing our behaviors? Have we actually read and studied and believed what he has said in the scriptures. Legalism always fails to read the Bible carefully. In fact, I think most legalism in the church, virtually every man-made rule that sidetracks people from devotion to Christ and forces on them rules and regulations would probably disappear overnight if people took the Bible seriously and read it consistently and honestly. Third, legalism places possessions over people, things over people. And Jesus values people over possessions. Legalism does the opposite. Just think about the evangelical church today. Because it's really easy for us to look down our noses at first century Pharisees, but it's hard to see our own legalism. We've all heard of churches that restricted people from dancing, smoking, drinking, etc. In a very real sense, that attitude made cigarettes more important than people because they were willing to write off a human being because they smoked. May not be wise, may not be healthy, but they would utterly write them off. Similar things are done in lots of churches with respect to dress or hairstyle or jewelry or body piercing or tattoos. Almost anything can become more important to us than people if we're not careful. And we can reverse it. We can say you don't have to dress up and we can make a law out of dressing down. And people have done that too. And we have to make sure that what we're doing, we're not imposing on others. Because anything can become more important to us than people. And then we see legalism breaks fellowship over these rules. Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. We read verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In the parallel account in Matthew, we read, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
they respond to this deliberate challenge by plotting to kill him. Remember, they have accused him of blasphemy when he healed the paralytic. But this is worse. They say he is deliberately violating the law. He worked on the Sabbath by healing a man. And legalism can have such a powerful stranglehold on some people. The law is an automatic defense mechanism. Sometimes we love the law for all the wrong reasons. Because the law gives us a wonderful sense of security. It's black and white. There's no wiggle room. No room for compassion, which can be unpredictable and uncontrollable. And the law gives us a way to measure our spirituality against the spirituality of others. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector. It allows us to judge them by whether or not they know enough scripture or have regular quiet times or they parent the right way or share their commitment to the right social causes or the right political parties or the right doctrinal issues. It's all legalism at work. But the story doesn't stop there. Because the man in this text is without question suffering physically. The word withered used here speaks of a very unique condition in which the muscles and often the bones themselves are shrunken due to a loss of nerves or a stiffening of the joints. Very similar to what we know of today as Lou Gehrig's disease. And it results from anything but recent disease. It's usually incurable. And the Greek word implies the man hadn't been born this way but rather that some illness, some disease has taken the strength from him. Here's a man whose hand has lost the moisture of life. That which gave it strength has been dried out of it, and it was a withered, wilted, useless thing with which he could do nothing. Now imagine for a moment going through life without the use of your hand. With all that we do with our hands, can you imagine not being able to use just one of them? And here's a man who, for whatever reason, has contracted a terrible disease that cost him the use of his hand. In those days, that would keep him from holding a job. That would keep him from having the respect of the people. That would keep him from being able to go to the temple and draw close to God. Perhaps it would help us to understand what happens if we heard it from his perspective. Yet again, I went to the synagogue on the Sabbath in hopes of seeing Jesus there. My shriveled hand has become an immense burden, and I've heard of Jesus' healing power. Perhaps I will find him, and he will heal me too. The Pharisees were sitting right up front, as is their custom, and I had to maneuver around a bit so I could get a good vantage point where I could see as well as be seen. The Pharisees looked at me with contempt. They knew why I was here, and they knew why I worked my way to the front. It's easy for them to be scornful of me wanting healing, even on the Sabbath, but then again, none of them have shriveled hands. Then Jesus came in. I spotted him before he was even through the door. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. Oh, the Pharisees saw him too. They watched him like a big cat watches its prey. No movement escapes their attention. 
Their heads swiveled in unison as Jesus walked to the front. And he walked right over to me. As if this was set up in advance, as if he could read the Pharisees' minds, as if he could read mine. Come and stand here, he said. It was a calm voice, yet laced with authority. It immediately reminded me of the stories I'd heard of Alexander, the great military commander of Greece. So I stood up without even thinking about what I was doing, and Jesus slowly turned and faced the teachers. He's a strong man. The muscles of his arms toned and powerful looking, his hands strong. I heard he had been a carpenter. Tough work for tough men. You could feel the tension in the room as he stood there. His eyes were a cold gray, the color of a well-used sword. He spoke, his voice slowly turned from ice to fire, still soft yet clear. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. The Pharisees, despite being authorities themselves, did not respond to authority very well. They just stared back at him. No one spoke, not one. The silence was deafening. Jesus looked at them hard, pity or contempt, I couldn't tell. But then, without even looking at me, the command rang out, stretch out your hand. I had forgotten I was standing. So engrossed in the situation, I had forgotten why I was there. I stretched out my hand, almost afraid to look. And it was good. It was healed. It was full and healthy and whole. I felt as if an old friend had come home. I looked into Jesus' eyes, and now they sparkled. My life had been changed, and he knew it. He grinned at me and with calloused hands reached up and wiped away the tears forming at the corner of my eyes. The lump in my throat was so big I couldn't speak, I just grinned back. I was so enthralled with this man Jesus, I didn't notice the Pharisees quietly seething and slipping away. Sometimes the stories of Jesus are more powerful when we hear them as stories, perhaps. Do me a favor. Look at your hand. Get your hand out. Take a look. Look at the back and then the palm. Reacquaint yourself with your fingers. Run a thumb over your knuckles. What if somebody made a documentary about your hand? What if the producer told your life story based on the life of your hands? What would we see? Well, I think as with all of us, the film would begin with an infant's fist, then a close-up of a tiny hand wrapped around mom's finger. Then what? Holding a chair as you learn to walk, holding a spoon as you learn to eat. We're not too long into the film before we see your hand being affectionate, stroking dad's rough face or petting the dog's soft fur. Nor would it be too long before we saw your hand pushing away your brother or yanking back a toy. All of us learn early. The hand is a tool used to express emotions. That same hand can help or hurt, extend or clench, lift someone up or push someone down. 
And were we to show this documentary here at church, you'd be proud of certain moments. Your hand extending with a gift, placing a ring on another's finger, doctoring a wound, preparing a meal, folding in prayer. But you might shrink back at those moments of accusing fingers or abusive fists. Hands taking rather than giving, demanding instead of offering, wounding rather than loving. Our hands are powerful. Leave them unmanaged and they can become weapons, clawing for power, strangling for survival, seducing for pleasure. But manage them and our hands become instruments of grace. Not just tools in the hands of God, but God's very own hands. Surrender them and these five-fingered appendages become the hands of heaven. And that's what Jesus did. Our Lord completely surrendered his hands to God the Father. The documentary of his hands would have no scenes of greedy grabbing or unfounded finger pointing. It would, however, have scene after scene after scene of people longing for his touch. Parents carrying their children, the poor bringing their fears, the sinful shouldering their sorrows, the crippled, diseased, and paralyzed dragging their shame, and each one who came was touched, and each one touched was changed. Even a man in Luke chapter 6, who on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, in front of the Pharisees, got his hand back. Because Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he can do that because he is the one who can make you whole. He pours out his grace on those of us who realize that though we may not have withered hands, without Christ we have withered hearts that love rules and lack mercy and therefore deserve his condemnation. But the essence of mercy is we don't get what we do deserve. Instead, we do get what we don't deserve, and that's grace. And we see it in Jesus' teaching we see it in Jesus' healing. We see it when he casts out demons. We see it with lepers and paralytics and even guys with bad hands. It's all grace. That's the message. And all who received that grace and mercy said, Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, we don't like people who have the same sins and the same faults and the same weaknesses that we do. And we don't like the Pharisees. They're too much like us. They're legalists. Probably make good Presbyterians. And we hate that. Teach us what it means to do good on the Sabbath. Lead us to acts of mercy and service and necessity. Show us how judging others is harmful to our own souls. Help us to look in Jesus' face and see his smile. Thank you that he is the true prophet, priest, and king. And thank you that he calls us into his kingdom. 
We ask these things in the name of the King, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.